Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Renee Garrett and I'm your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is 60 minutes in length and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Ed received an honorarium for his participation in this podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and Ed has no non-financial disclosures to report. As the host of this podcast, I do receive financial reimbursement from SpeechTherapyPD.com, I'm also a paid employee of a private consulting firm in the Commonwealth of Virginia, as well as an adjunct instructor at Old Dominion University. I also, as my non-financial disclosure, I am the Secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Tonight, we are joined by Ed Bice, MED, CCC SLP. Ed is currently working as a clinical consultant for IOP Medical. He is the co-founder of Appalachian Zenith Training and Education Courses, Aztec. He has experience in various settings, including acute care, outpatient, home health, and skilled nursing. Ed has held various leadership positions, including a regional manager, vice president of clinical services, and chief operating officer. Ed has been a guest on national and international dysphagia podcasts, written articles concerning dysphagia and dysphagia-related topics for Dysphagia Cafe, and has numerous publications in peer-reviewed journals. Ed was an invited member of the committee that developed the Adult Dysphagia Practice Portal for the American Speech, Hearing, and Language Association. The document provides guidance to clinicians across the United States for assessing and treating adults with swallowing difficulties. He teaches an introductory and advanced swallowing course at the University of Maryland as adjunct faculty. Ed has served as an expert witness in court cases related to swallowing and swallowing disorders. He has been an invited speaker for universities, state, national, and international conventions on various topics in dysphagia. So without further ado, welcome, Ed, and thank you for being here. Hi, thanks so much for the invitation. Absolutely. So we'll go ahead and just jump right in. I I know that you are a huge proponent of ethics and dysphagia, which I love because I think we talk about this so much in our field, but at the same time, there's so many sort of missing chunks that we know are in practice in in a variety of settings as we were kind of chatting about this before we got started tonight. So what would you say is a concern interrelating ethics and dysphagia? I think it's interesting that we, as speech-language pathologists, are required to take an ethics course. But typically, when we take these courses on ethics, it's this general medical ethics course, right? Beneficence, malfeasance. And it's like, but we have this whole code of ethics that relates specifically to us as speech-language pathologists. And as I travel around talking about it, what I'm learning is, Very few people actually know what our specific code of ethics from the American Speech Language Hearing Association says and how that interfaces with specifically, from my perspective, the practice of dysphagia treatment. And so I will say the code of ethics from ASHA, by definition, in its own preamble, says that it sets the standard of care Mm -hmm. and that it is obligatory 
that word is used specifically in the ASHA Code of Ethics, meaning this is not optional. This is how you will practice. And in most states, most states defer back to the national standard for standard of practice. And so, therefore, if you as a clinician ever go to court, this standard of practice, the Code of Ethics, is how you will be judged. Mm-hmm. And so it's for me, it's like, how could you not know what this says? <laughs> how can we not be talking about this all of the time? Because it is how we will be judged. There's a, a new ethics course that just came out and, and they interviewed an attorney who is one of the leading malpractice attorneys in the country. And what he said was, when you go to court, don't worry about what an attorney thinks of you because the attorney isn't going to be testifying against you. What you need to think about is what your well-respected, knowledgeable peer will say about what you have done. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about how your question, back to your question, how ethics intermingles with dysphagia management, I think it establishes, the ASHA Code of Ethics establishes how we should be practicing and sets us up for if we're not practicing this way, we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one of the things that, and I said this, I think it was last week to my students, one of the things that I have seen along the course of my career is people who are, you know, I don't want to say misrepresenting themselves. I think maybe overconfident might be a better word in their skill set and their claimant of what they are able to do versus what they are truly ethically. And we'll talk about competence in a little bit but ethically responsible to do, because it's clearly stated if you are not knowledgeable, competent, you know, you haven't, basically, if you haven't done the work, don't do the stuff because there should balance, right? There should be a balance of what you've done to prepare yourself to be the person that your patient or your client gets the best treatment from. And if you're not, if you're not, then just say you're not and refer, there's no shame in that, in my opinion. You you should be referring to someone who is the resident, expert, competent, however we want to call it, because I know I've certainly had more complex cases, especially when it comes to head and neck cancer, or even some with voice that were not, you know, your typical GERD kind of voice patient who shows up and really just needs some education. It's more the motor piece and things like that, that we need to be referring to people who have specialized in these areas. And I think the flip side of that is with dysphagia, we have the expectation across practice settings that we're all the same as SLPs. We all have the same training and we all should be able to practice the exact same way. And I say that from an employer standpoint, I feel like that is the case. They see us as one size fits all. And we know that's not true. And I think that's so fascinating. You bring up a very interesting point because having served as the VP of clinical services and as the COO of a therapy company, as a clinician, because most of the time when we're in situations for work, it's a clinician who's supervising us. And it's so ironic that they don't understand that all clinicians are not created equal. I mean, it's so obvious to us as clinicians that things that you know, like aphasia, let me tell you an aphasia client accidentally got put on my schedule a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and when I walked in, he was already in the clinic. And when I walked in and started reading his paperwork and realized it was aphasia and not dysphagia, I broke out in a cold sweat. And I quickly went and got our CF and said, you're going to have to do this because I don't know anything about aphasia. <laughs> and I will stick <laughs> with you while you do it, but I can't do it. <laughs> she talked me off that she talked me off the ledge and said, you know, said, you know, we have these tests and you can read the instructions, right? And I was like, Yeah, I can read the instructions. And as soon as it's over, I'm gonna <laughs> hand it off to somebody else to analyze what we found out and to treat them. But I can read the instructions in a manual. But it's that realization that I didn't know what to do for this person, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a misnomer, and I see this on social media a lot when when people will type something complaining about that a physician overrode their diet order like we can actually write orders. We don't write orders. Only physicians write orders. So they're not overriding anything. They're making a decision about their patient. And then someone will inevitably post, you're the dysphagia expert. And it's like, are you the dysphagia expert? So expert has a very specific definition. 
It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that you took a three-hour class. It's kind of like me walking into a room and saying, I took algebra, so I'm the math expert, even though there are physicists and engineers and who know so much more about math, but because I took an algebra class, I'm the math expert. No, just because you took a class in something does not make you the expert. There is a very specific definition of what makes one an expert. And so, again, like you were saying, misrepresenting our skills and Mm -hmm. saying that we have a level of knowledge that we don't have. Because I will tell you, there are very few people, because I only work in the world of dysphagia, so I don't know people in other areas, but there are very few people that I would call experts. I don't call myself an expert because that is a very high level of knowledge and a very high expectation to say of someone that they're an expert. So it's very fair to say, I may be the only one in the room who took a class in this. That's a true statement, right? I took a a dysphagia course. No one else here did. Mm -hmm. Did I sleep through half of it? Did I make a B? Did I, you know, I mean, there there are certainly you as an an instructor and, and myself as an instructor, we know that there are certain levels even from a student knowledge perspective, when we ask essay questions, we can read those questions and see which students really understand the material versus those that are just have a cursory view of the material. But they all get a CCC eventually after their name and have the possibility of treating people with swallowing disorders. And again, I have a totally biased view. But eating and drinking, to me, is one of the most important aspects of our lives because it impacts our psychosocial well-being. It impacts our ability to participate in culture, nutrition and hydration, which is the foundation of life. And so it, it impacts people in so many ways that it's not something to play with. And if you don't know, to be able to say, I don't know, but I also, on the other side, understand that there are people in companies who expect you to treat whatever comes your way. Mm -hmm. And so this is where you advocate for your patient and you are ethical by saying, I just don't know what to do with this person. And so you have options, get a mentor, network, find someone who can help you or refer. And in most of these cases, I would say probably if you're in a skilled nursing facility, they're not going to let you refer out no matter what you do. So then it is incumbent upon you to network and find someone who can help you work through this case so that you're providing the care that needs to be provided to this person who's in a very vulnerable position. They're locked in this facility. You're the only person that is going to, you know, that they're going to allow to interact with them related to this disorder. And so this person needs you to do more than just say, I don't know what to do and play games and watch them eat and not help them. Watch them eat. Ugh. Also, most speech language pathologists are not mathologists is always what I tell the patient or the my students to like, please don't ask me to math at four o'clock. <laughs> so, but I was in acute care for 10 years and thinking about some of the medically complex cases that, you know, we did have multidisciplinary teams too. Like we were relying on the dietitian and maybe the physical therapist and the OT for a variety of things from positioning to adaptive equipment to specific dietary needs. And we worked together. And there were a lot of times where I didn't know the answer. So those were my sources of making sure that the decisions or I won't say decisions, the recommendations that I was making were sound based on these other pieces of the puzzle. And I think that's one of the things I feel like is an ethical concern that I I see a lot of people not doing. And I don't know if it's fear of maybe feeling like you won't look as competent in front of your peers, but I feel like it's the opposite because if you're asking the right questions, or even if you're asking the question that leads you to an answer you weren't anticipating, you're asking the question and you're going to those individualized pieces of the puzzle that present for the holistic care of the patient, because that's really what it's all about. Yeah, because we don't have, first of all, we're not medical professionals. We are allied health professionals, right? So we don't study the body the way that medical professionals do. And someone, probably five people just hung up and left, but, you know, but it's true. And dysphagia interacts with 
the pulmonary system, the GI system, the neurological system, and then we start talking about the oral microbiome and all of these systems that are so highly complex and then they integrate together in some way. It's just not possible for us to understand this to the level that we need to understand it to inform our recommendations if they're going to be solid recommendations. And then when we talk about nutrition, we don't get training in nutrition. And when I say that to my patients, when they ask me questions about what they should eat, and I say, I have no training in nutrition, they're they're always very taken back. And this is a problem that we have been kind of forced into a silo and we've allowed ourselves to get pushed into this situation where we're making these complex decisions related to many bodily systems that we don't know about. And we're not asking people to do something about it. And I will tell you that is in the code of ethics that we have to recommend when it is out of our scope. Yes. And if, again, in a court case, you are not doing that and it leads to harm in the patient, certainly I'm going to testify that you didn't follow the standard of care. I published a paper, I think it was two years ago now, I lose track of when you're writing and publishing, you just kind of, it all melds together. It seems like one long continuous event. But anyway, I think it was two years ago now, it was a survey about how speech pathologists interact with dietitians. And the, it asked several questions, but the, you know, the, one of the first questions was, in the last year, how many times have you interacted with an RD before making a diet recommendation? And we asked lots of questions. But it, we found that it was very interesting that no matter the setting, acute care, SNF, inpatient rehab, home health, that everyone recommended about the same. Home health and acute care were interacting with dietitians at the same level. When acute care, dietitians are ubiquitous. You know, you can throw a rock and hit a dietitian. But in home health, you actually have to pick up the phone and find someone to interact with. But they were interacting at about the same level, which was all abysmal, I will just say. And that's that, insane. I hung out in the in the RD's office probably more more than I did in my own. <laughs> Well, I learned I learned so much from them when I worked in acute care. You, you yes. know, I mean, I would just pick their brains all the time and ask them questions. And I mean, patients were always getting three-day calorie counts to check their nutrition because that was what was important, not whether they were drinking thick and liquids or not, but were they getting enough nutrition and hydration to heal so they could get better and get out of the hospital, right? This is what's important. And so it was a very interesting, the information that came out of that survey But we ask an open-ended question like, what diagnosis would prompt you to consult an RD? That was an open-ended question. And the answers, there were no statistically significant answers because they were just all over the board. But you know what was way down on the list? Malnutrition and dehydration. What? Yeah, I I mean, it was just really interesting. The most common answer, which out of the 300 people, I think like 10 people selected it was, you know, if they were on a special diet, like no added salt or no concentrated sweets, that that would refer them. Well, if they're already on that diet, the dietitian is most likely going to be involved anyway. They're not going to need you to flag that chart, right? Mm -hmm. But if they're not seeing a patient and you go in and this patient is not eating and they're not drinking and you're the first person to interact with them, the natural person to to bring in next would be the RD, right? But mm-hmm. we're not trying to do nutritional screens. And so I will tell you that I do a nutritional screen on all of my patients to know whether or not they need a referral to an RD. Because again, swallowing is secondary to nutrition and hydration. It's kind of like swallowing is secondary to breathing. Breathing. You know, <laughs> swallowing is not the most important thing. Yeah, and, breathing. Uh, <laughs> but because we work, yeah, because we work in a silo, it becomes the most important thing because we don't understand all these other moving pieces. And so the patient not drinking their thick and liquids becomes the sentinel event in the day rather than, wow, maybe they're going to be hydrated. <laughs> yeah. But it's because we don't understand all these moving pieces and we've allowed ourselves to be siloed. And so what else do we concentrate on? What else do we focus on? Yeah, that brings me to, and this is a, not this is not a, a question we were going to discuss, but let, let's go back to 
this, you know, we'll talk about the standard of care in a minute, but it, it brings me back to the folks who are still adamant that we trial thick and liquids at bedside with no imaging and the folks that in acute care will not agree to keep a patient NPO. And because in the, in the hospital that I worked in and most of the hospitals in that same health system, depending on where you're located, you may not have access to modified barium over the weekend because the radiologist simply says, I'm not doing it. It's a weekend. I'm here to read the CTs and the MRIs and that's it. Goodbye. Get out of my face. And so you may have a case where you see someone on a Saturday and you have to wait until Monday. And if there's concern for nutrition and hydration, then a lot of times the doctors would, you know, ask me, do you think they should have a dob hall for the weekend? And I, I would say, yeah, but I had someone I worked with who would say, absolutely not. I don't want to put the patient through that. And I'm like, well, do you want them to be dehydrated? They came in here looking like that already. <laughs> they're on the train. Like they're already on the train. Let's get them something until we can do this instrumental and make sure they're safe. Which again, brings me to the standard of care and how that is just, I feel like it just varies so much depending on who you are, where you are. Um, yeah, but it shouldn't. It because shouldn't. There, exactly. Because there is a black and white standard of care. And to speak to your point, very interesting. So for those of you listening, until March 22nd of 2024, my most recent article is available without a paywall. And what we did was we looked at 120 patients who had just been discharged from hospitals to skilled nursing facilities. They all had a diagnosis of dysphagia. They were all getting swallowing therapy. The overwhelming majority were on altered diets. 33 of them were on feeding tubes. We went in and did fees and we used the digest so we could have a standard scale of, yes, this person has dysphagia or no, this person doesn't have dysphagia. And 67% of them did not have dysphagia according to the digest, a valid scale. And only five of them scored a four on the digest, which is life-threatening, meaning they would need a feeding tube or it should be recommended that they get a feeding tube. Only four out of the 33. And so... The lack of imaging, and and I will put the onus a lot back on the acute care therapist that they're discharging these people with this diagnosis to a level of care that doesn't have immediate access to imaging and who face a lot of administrative constraints getting imaging. And we need to work together as a unit better and not just focus on what's happening in our facility at our point in time, but be more focused on what's going to happen to this person when they leave my care and make sure that they're getting the assessments that they need so that they're prepared for the next level of care. Yeah. And I will say in 10 years in acute care, I really can honestly say I don't recall maybe one time and it was more that they didn't think the patient was ready, whatever that means for imaging. I don't think I ever had pushback from a physician for doing imaging. It was more I had to make sure radiology would accommodate if I wanted to do six studies in a day or 10 studies in a day, because I would rather, and I would always say, I'd rather we prove them wrong than we do nothing and we're wrong. Let's prove them wrong that you need to be MPO versus we do nothing and then we're wrong and you wind up back here. Because mm -hmm. There were so many times that if I wasn't on on the weekend and I came in on a Monday and I had all these swallow studies, the patient had been, it was just dependent on who covered. I would come in and have these swallow studies and the patient had been NPO all weekend. But if you looked at one, if there were a stroke workup, you looked at where the stroke was and you knew your neuroanatomy, you would know that's probably not someone with a true dysphagia unless they've got something else that was pre-morbid or something else happened along the way, or two, they would make someone NPO because they just didn't want to do the eval. The patient was out of the room. And now you've got this person who's been NPO all weekend. We do the swallow study and they're chug a lug and bury them like I'm giving them a, a bourbon and Coke or something because, <laughs> you know, Virginia. <laughs> and they're, I mean, they're getting after it. They're using a straw, they're doing whatever. And I'm not stopping them because I want to see the natural element of what actually happens. And they aspirate nothing. They have no residue. They have no delay of anything orally or fringely. They have none of the 17 things that we're supposed to be looking at if we're looking at the MBS IMP protocol. 
right. they've been in bed for three days. It makes no sense. So I think, like you said, the standard of care is there. We should know what that is. And we should, if we're going to be doing the thing called dysphagia evaluation and treatment, then we need to know what that looks like and why it matters. Because ultimately it comes back to quality of life, safety, nutrition, and nutrition, uh, hydration, uh, breathing, the, the foundations of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I will tell you, I, I find it very interesting. So uh, just a personal story. When my mother passed at 95 years old in May of 2023, my sisters were her primary caregivers. And so I met my oldest sister at the hospital and she was 95 years old. She had ischemic bowel. She wasn't going to leave the hospital, right? I mean, this was, this is where we were. And uh, my sister had probably been at the hospital for two hours before I could get there with her. And I walked in and my mom asked for some water. And so I went to the water pitcher and started pouring my mom some water and my sister said, oh, the doctor said not to give her anything to drink. She might aspirate. Well, you know, a prophet has no honor in his own country. So there's my sister not understanding, you know, what I do for a living. Right. So I looked at her and I said, I think I'll make this call. And when the doctor came in, I said, so let me understand this. You think that someone who is actively dying, that the worst thing that can happen to them is that they will aspirate. So explain that medically to me. <laughs> and, you know, as my wife will say, after that, the doctor was, every time the doctor came in, they were kind of bowing down to me. Is it okay if we do this? It is okay if we do that. But, you know, it was just so fr frustrating that this doctor had received some education from someone that aspiration was the worst thing that could happen to you. It's worse than dying, apparently. Mm -hmm. You know, and we've got to, we've just got to minimize what we're doing as far as our role. I think mm -hmm. that swallowing is important. That's why I focus on it. But there are so many more things important in a person's life than aspirating or not aspirating or drinking thick and liquids or not drinking thick and liquids. There's just too many things, too many components of a person's life to narrow it down to this. Right. And I On think a, that if we had a broader view, we would be more comfortable in our skin. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that goes back to competence and what that really means. What does that actually look like? Because I think, you know, like you said, we get that three hour dysphagia course, but then, you know, you can be a, a bad practitioner and work in a setting where you're treating dysphagia all day long, but you're not really treating dysphagia. If you're staring at your patient while they're eating, that's not, there's nothing skilled. We have plenty of CNAs and um, nurse assistants who do that in restorative dining in the nursing, skilled nursing facilities. Um, so that's not considered a billable, skillable. Right. Uh, well, and competency, yeah. I, I mean, the definition of competency is having the sufficient knowledge and judgment and or skill to perform an activity. Knowledge, judgment, and skill. And, you know, on the top of my dysphagia syllabus, it says when you complete this course, you will not have the knowledge, judgment, or skill to treat patients with this, this disorder. In other words, you will not be competent after this course. I mean, and that's just the reality of it. You know, we cannot, in 45 hours across a semester, give you everything and every nuance of every situation that you need to understand in order to be successful treating people with this disorder. And so the Ahesha Code of Ethics uses the word competence many times, like that we have to be competent to provide a service, that we have to be sure before we let our students that we're supervising provide a service that they've displayed a competence. You know, competence, competence, competence. And just because you have CCC after your name doesn't mean that you're competent in every area of practice. Again, you have to have the knowledge, the judgment, and in order to judge, that's not a gut feeling, <laughs> and it's not tied to the number of years you've been doing something, right? because you do something wrong for a long time. Mm -hmm. So judgment has to be based in facts. Like, So I know this and this and this to be true, and I see this and this and this happening, and so I'm basing my judgment on information and knowledge that I've acquired, not just on a gut feeling. 
which I feel so many times when people say, well, your clinical judgment, your clinical judgment, they're referring to this notion that they have. No, your clinical judgment has to be steeped in a sound process of decision-making and skill. So you have enough practice and you have enough information to actually implement what you've, what you know, and what you've judged to be true. And now you have the skill to put that into practice. That's a pretty high standard. Mm-hmm. It always makes me think I'm, I'm like you, I like a, a personal story or a real case. There was a case I was working on a few years ago. This is pre pandemic. And this particular gentleman had been a patient in the hospital before, but he was obese. And this last time, one of the last times he was at the hospital with us, had a trach and it was a new trach. And he'd been in ICU for uh, probably two, three weeks. And he moved to our step down unit. Some people call it intermediary care. I know they have a bunch of names for it now. Uh, we called it step down. One step down from ICU. You're not sick enough to be there, but you're not sick enough to go to the regular floor because you need more eyes and hands on you. So they had quite a few new nurses fresh out of nursing school who maybe had a trait course, maybe didn't, maybe had some hands-on experience, maybe didn't. And I remember going in to see this guy. I mean, he was still pretty lethargic. He was on some medications that were sedating him a little bit too, but he was like I said, obese, very obese, morbidly obese. And so he really had pretty quick muscle deconditioning. It was hard for him to get a good solid cough. But what would happen is when we were doing PMV trials with the respiratory therapist, they, of course, you know, wanted him to wear it for a certain number of hours or minutes or whatever it was. And the nurse was supposed to come check on him. She didn't know much about any of the things, the trach or the PMV. And so she would just take it off because she was scared because if she touched it, he would cough like touched it, meaning touched any of the trach with the PMV on or off, didn't matter, he coughed because that's what happens. So I went in and he had some bloody secretions one morning. And so I called her in because no one had been in to clean his trach or do any kind of like suctioning. And in Virginia, we can't do, you know, anything. We can do outside intercannula stuff with the yonk hour, it's not going to be, you're not doing anything deep invasive or whatever. And so I called her in and she was like, well, I just don't know how to do this. And, I, and I'm going to have to call respiratory. And I was like that for you, this is a great learning opportunity. So yes, if you want to learn how you can help your patient when they look like they're on the train to mucus plug, because they haven't been suctioned at all, this whole shift the way to do that is, yes, call the respiratory therapist. I'll even stay in here with you and help you understand why this is important to his speech, to his swallowing, to his recovery, for him to be able to breathe without all of this other extra stuff is unnecessary. And she was looking at me like I was crazy. And I was like, listen, I'm here to help you. I don't want you to feel like you're coming in this room and you're just not going to do something because you don't know how. You have to ask the questions and be okay with asking the questions. It's okay to say, I'm not 100% competent or 100% whatever it is. I need to know more. Who can I call? Who can I bring with me? Who can help me learn this piece of information I need? Because when I was a student, we had trach patients in the skilled nursing facility and we didn't have a respiratory therapist. Yeah, yeah. And I think that I'm not sure when it became problematic to ask questions outside of social media. I mean, you know, like people feel very comfortable there with because they yeah. have anonymity. You know, they're not seeing people face to face. And it's yeah. like, why are you asking this question in your facility? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you know why are you coming to social media where you have you can't vet what people know and don't know and who's who really advice you should take and whose advice you should never take? You don't know. These are just all rando people. And you know nothing about their, you know, you know nothing about their competence or skill level or judgment. And if you ask a question, you're going to get answers. But I will tell you, this week I encountered a patient that I had to ask questions about to my colleagues who know more about this particular disorder that this patient had than I do. And it's like, I'm happy to ask questions because at the end of the day, my job isn't to protect myself. It's to help my patient. Right. That's my job. And so if I have to show my own ignorance, you know, in order to get the patient help, then so be it. That's what I do. And yes, I actually had to 
get help this week from someone else that I know knows more about this than I do. And so I think that we need to develop those kind of communities in advance and not wait until we have a problem, but develop a network, whether you, you know, skilled nursing facility therapists are often the only one, create a band of other clinicians who are in your situation that maybe have a Zoom meeting once a month so that you get to know each other and that you can network and ask each other questions and problem solve together. And if you don't know someone who can answer your question, maybe someone else in your group can answer it or they know someone who can answer it. Create a community for yourself to promote your own learning for the benefit of you and your patients. Right. I I mean, that's a really good plan. I think so too. And again, I think sometimes even if you do have the knowledge and the experience and you feel pretty good about, you know, what the recommendations are, sometimes it, it feels like, especially when you treat medically complex patients, sometimes it's almost like you need a second set of eyes from an SLP that you know has similar training or similar uh, experience in that setting and, and to be able to say, hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking, but I, I'm making sure that I'm really thinking it through. What are your ideas? And so that's one of the things I tell my students all the time, too. And I've said it on the podcast. I've said it on my webinars. Um, you know, you may not want to go have coffee or a glass of wine with this person that you're in school with right now. Therapy world is small. You might think it's not. But how many times have you encountered someone who knew someone who knew you or you went to school with or you went to this training with and now you're sitting across the table and they're interviewing you or you're interviewing them for a job and maybe you don't like each other to go hang out. But professionally, you need to know who this person is, what their level of expertise is and keep that professional relationship and don't burn bridges because you never know. I mean, really don't. And the other thing I will say is I tell my students this a lot. I say, I love to be the dumbest person in the room because that means I'm going to learn the most. And I don't don't mind exposing what I know and what I don't know. I'm very comfortable with the parameters of what I know. And one of someone who was a, a guiding force in my career once said to me, who who it was notoriously considered to be a difficult individual and, you know, that people thought this person was very difficult to get along with. She said, one of the reasons I like you is because you're not afraid to say what you don't know. And it's like, well, if I don't say what I don't know, how am I going to learn to fill in that gap? And, and I think that this is, you know, again, we are, most of us SOPs are type A, right? And I am type A. And so it's not easy for me just to put myself out there. But again, when I start thinking about what is the purpose of my learning, and it's not for my ego or my benefit, it's for the benefit of my patients. And Mm -hmm. so, again, being vulnerable to be to learning and to not be defensive and to, to not be concerned about, am I going to look stupid or am I going to sound stupid? Or I have to be defensive and push back against you, which generally turns around to a personal attack rather than attack on ideas and and information, right? Because when you can't attack what the person is saying intellectually, then you have to attack them personally. In our world, it's very easy for people to push back and say, well, you're mansplaining or you're, you know, you're being arrogant or whatever. No, I'm just telling you what I know. And, you know, and so I think that we need to get to a place where it's not about us. It's about our mm-hmm. patients. And then we'll be in a different mindset about how we accept it, how we accept advice from clinicians who know how to give advice. Yeah. And some of the I know some of the topics I've covered in the past, I've said people have said those were heavy or or very um, difficult conversations. And I'll say, yeah, because sometimes if you're uncomfortable, that's when you learn, because if you're uncomfortable, you're going to seek out more information. You're going to do the research. You're going to go talk to your network or your trusted person that you feel like you can bounce ideas off of or trusted people. And I think that, again, we're sort of reiterating the same thing, just using different um, semantics. And just for, for a pressure check, just I, I want to tell everyone, if you go to the ASHA Code of Ethics, all you have to do is Google ASHA Code of Ethics. It will come up. 4B 
says, individuals shall exercise independent professional judgment in recommending and providing professional service. And this is the part I want you to take away. When an administrative mandate, referral source, or prescription keeps you from keeping the welfare of the patient paramount. So if an administrator tells you to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing, then you do have to not do it. Mm-hmm. And if you do it and you go and the patient dies or something negative has to the patient and you go to court saying he told me to do it is not a defense because the no. standard says shall, which means it's obligatory by the very definitions in the ASHA Code of Ethics that it is not up to your discretion. And so saying someone else told me to do this will not excuse you from your liability. Yeah, and I think that's a good way of bringing it back to what that looks like for clinicians that are treating dysphagia and what that standard of care, you know, requiring informed consent. Because, I, again, we, you know, we talk about this a lot. We talk about informed consent a lot. But a lot of people think they know what it means, but I don't think they really know what it means. <laughs> Yeah, 1H, principle 1H, guys, if you want to look it up in the ASHA Code of Ethics, you know, some of them I just had memorized, right? (laughs) And informed consent is one of them. And it's very interesting because it ends by saying if the patient can't provide informed consent, then a family member or caregiver who is or designee must provide informed consent. Because the question I always get when I talk about informed consent at conventions is, well, what if the patient can't make the decision? And it's like, well, then obviously you haven't read the code of ethics because it says it right there, what you're supposed to do if the patient can't make the decision. But informed consent after informed means that's your part of the job, right? That you have to provide the patient with all the information about the possible positive and negative outcomes of the choices that you're recommending. So, for example, if I say, you know, you should drink thickened liquids, which just FYI, I don't say that. I never, I don't make recommendations to my patients. I educate them about their possible choices. And I say, there are no good choices. And so what would you like to do? And I know that blows people's minds because that I don't make recommendations. But if I knew that the answer, if there was a good answer, if there was something that I knew would help the patient, I would tell them. But we know from research that when it comes to thickened liquids and diets, there are no good answers. And so we don't know what to tell them. And so in a case where we don't know what to tell, you know, where there is no good answer, telling them that there is a good answer is is really not okay. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's really coercive. So I say, you know, so we did the study and when you drink this glue, it doesn't go to your lungs. Here's the bad part about the glue. It doesn't taste good. It's not going to, you know, probably isn't going to quench your thirst. It could cause you to become dehydrated. It could interfere with your glucose levels. It could, um, when you become dehydrated, you could become confused and it could, and you could fall you know, I mean, on and on and on. And then you could still could get pneumonia. And here's thin liquid. So if you continue to drink this, you'll probably cough. And that may make you uncomfortable that you're coughing. It, um, it could eventually cause pneumonia if it goes to your lungs. And on and on. And you explain all of those things. And then you say, what would you like to do? That's informed consent. Mm-hmm. I, I think you should do this. That's coercion. Mm-hmm. But you, your job is to provide the education and information in a balanced view that doesn't sway the patient one way or the other in the case that there is no good answer, which diets, we know there is no good answer, even though we know that that is the number one recommendation that SOPs make to people with dysphagia. And the same with diets. So you could eat this regular food and you could have, you could choke, okay? Um, You could eat this pureed food and you may not be interested in it because it looks bad. You, it has fewer calories, it has less protein. Your wounds may not heal if you eat this food rather than that food. Again, there's no good choice because there are possible negative and positive consequences. And notice I'm not using the word risk. Notice I'm not using that because we can't quantify risk. And and it's Mm -hmm. a fear-based 
word that we need to remove from our vocabulary. There are possible positive consequences and negative consequences of every choice. That's balanced. That's, you know, to say possible negative and possible positive. That is, that's balanced. It's not fear-based. It's not coercive. If I start saying safety and risk, all these fear-based words, oh, well, if I do this, I'm not going to be safe. If I do this, I'm at risk for not being safe. Those are, those are not those don't present a balanced view, in my opinion. Negative, positive, those are opposites. Those are measurable. They're balanced. When we use those words, we're being fairly objective. And so those are the words that I choose to use um, to try to present a balanced view. But yes, one principle 1H says that we shall obtain informed consent from our patients before um proceeding with anything, any kind of treatment, any kind of assessment, any kind, and, and diets are treatment, just FYI, and that's been held up in the courts. And so, yes, the diets are informed consent before putting, putting, quote unquote, a patient on a diet is required by our ethics and by federal law. And so, again, and, and I will tell you, the, the last court case I did, actually, the attorney for the defendant said, so, because it was about a patient who choked to death, so if this patient chose to eat regular food and choke to death, you would be okay with that? And I said, well, I'm never okay if someone choking to death, but both legally and ethically, if they made that decision, then I don't have anything to say about it. That was their choice. They're an independent adult just like I am. And so, yeah, do I want them to choke to death? No. But after they make their decision, is do I need to be judging them? No. That's what they decided. And this was the outcome. And okay. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, you know, with patients with progressive neurological disorders or even our patients who are head and neck cancer survivors who maybe have some, you know, outliers from their treatment like lymphedema or trismus um, or fibrosis, they make a choice. They they want to eat because they know that they've, for all intents and purposes, beaten the cancer or in the case of progressive neurological disease, they're more interested in their quality of life, their ability, as you mentioned, psychosocial interaction with their family, holidays, um, friends, they make a choice to um, eat what they want. And who am I to tell them not to? I can right, say. We've got to get rid of this judgment zone, right? Yeah. We've got to say, you know, that there is a good choice and a bad choice. I think when we come to the place where we realize that we have 50 years of research and we have no definitive evidence that altering diets changes long-term outcomes. And when we wrap our head around that, then we can give up this judgment zone of I know what's right for you and I know what's best for you and let and and it and legally that protects you and and ethically it protects you and it frees you up from so much now what I will say is you can't go back to your facility tomorrow morning and say okay well I'm not doing diets and liquids anymore because we, as speech pathologists, have done such a good cell job that, one, we know what diets people should be on when it's totally subjective. And when we look, when we ask five SLPs to make these decisions, they make five different decisions. There's nothing objective about it. It's totally subjective. But we have sold it so well that now it's ingrained in the fabric of our healthcare system. And so it's going to be baby steps. It's going to be starting conversations of, well, you know, there's that there really is no evidence for thickened liquids, or you know that there's lots of negative cons with the like the people in charge, the director of nursing, or whoever is the in charge clinically, and you know, the the chief medical officer. You know, I, I find it very interesting that and start this conversation and begin this dialogue that is going to start inching you closer to this place, you know, when when I, I said this the other day to someone else, you know, we're always moving. We're, we're, we're in our profession, we're not static. And, and we have to decide which direction we're moving in, farther away from reality and our goals or closer to reality and our goals, because we're always moving. 
And I think that, again, this is one of those things where you can't just go back and stomp your feet and fold your arms and tell people how you're going to do it. It's something that's going to take a culture change. And so it's going to be one step at a time, one article at a time, one discussion at a time until you get to this point where everyone's on the same page about what we really know about the interface of swallowing and diets and liquids. Because how many times have you heard, oh, but I, from another professional, oh, but I was told thicker is better or everyone should be tucking their chin. Doctors. I had a doctor stop yes. me when I was working on a weekend rotation in the hospital. Um, lady who had had her fifth stroke and I, you know, I went in and she had been on thick and liquids previously and she wouldn't drink them and she wasn't interested in drinking them. She failed. She failed the Yale. I'm sure she was aspirating. She didn't want thick and liquids. And so I didn't recommend them. And the doctor said to me after she read my book, we typically put people like this on thick and liquids. Well, what, what does that even mean, for one thing? And, you know, and I said back to her, the good news is you're the doctor and you can do whatever you want. But the patient doesn't want thick and liquids and I'm advocating on behalf of the patient. Yeah, because along with informed consent, I think everywhere I've ever worked, there's something called the patient bill of rights and it's on the wall. You get trained on it. And one of the things it says, and this is, facility driven and health system driven, the patient has the right to refuse any and all care they don't deem necessary. There you go, there you go. And we're running out of time and I wanna make sure that I get this one more point in. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, Code of Ethics 2G, individuals shall make you, the individuals, us, SOPs, shall make use of technology and instrumentation consistent with accepted guidelines in their areas of practice when such technology is not available an appropriate referral may be made so shall make use of technology and instrumentation consistent now shall remember i said was obligatory that it's not up for discretion and so if you go back because again as you mentioned in my bio i helped compose the the um ASHA adult dysphagia portal. If you go back and look at those guidelines, you'll see that imaging is required for any kind of dysphagia that's nondescript. So again, we don't want to get ourselves in a situation. Now we can we can argue all day, but I have the clinical judgment to make these decisions. But you know what? I guess I'm just stupid because after 30 years of just focusing on this one disorder, I don't have it. Okay. And I will just admit it. Now, maybe some other people really have it. I don't know because I don't know every situation in every circumstance. But 30 years of focusing on one disorder, I don't have it. But, th but regardless of whether we have it or not, the guidelines say that that's what's appropriate to do. And the code of ethics says that we have to be consistent with the guidelines. And so if you're not doing it and you find yourself in court, then don't be surprised where you end up. In the back of the ASHA leader <laughs> with your name <laughs> and some sanctions. <laughs> <laughs> again, I, you know, I, I think I'd like to think that for the most part, people want to do good. Um, but what I'm seeing, and, and I've had this conversation a couple of times with a, different people is generationally, we're seeing differences. And I don't I'm not trying to pick on the, the new grads or the younger generations, less less seasoned. But what I see a lot of times is that they aren't always empowered for whatever reason, to be the person who asks those questions or brings up those uncomfortable conversations. And so as um, clinical educators, as uh, instructors in university settings, that's something I think needs to be maybe mentioned a little bit more um, because they do. I have an article called How It Works in the Real World. Yeah. And it's in, in Perspectives 15. And the whole onus is placed back on the institution, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the educational institution. Why are you letting your students just pass through without debriefing them what they learned and saw in their clinical practicums? Why mm -hmm. are you not 
Why are you not telling them both negative practice patterns and positive practice patterns when you teach your course? Because when I didn't do that, I would have students come back and say, do you know about this intervention? Because I didn't tell them about it. They thought I didn't know about it. And it was like, oh, yeah, I do know about it. But, I, you know, I'm thinking I didn't tell you about it because I didn't want you to know about it. But now I teach both. I play a game with my students. It's called Keep or Toss. And we on one side of the screen is a garbage can and the other side is a bookshelf. And we go through and look at interventions from a, an anatomical physiological standpoint, from an exercise physiology standpoint, from a motor learning standpoint, um, and a neuroplasticity standpoint. And we go through and, and evaluate the intervention from that. And it's, do we keep it or do we toss it? And if we keep it, we put it on the shelf. And if we toss it, we throw it in the trash. Um, and so, you know, we've got to teach both sides. And we've got mm -hmm. to teach them how to make those decisions. We don't just give them a list of exercises to do. We have to teach them how to think through and analyze these interventions or any or any advice that they get from a clinical supervisor. But I think the key is giving them the opportunity, I call it detox, to detox with you after they've gone to their clinical placement so that you can hear what they saw and talk to them and coach them back to reality rather than just letting them move forward with those bad practices and perpetuating them generation after generation. And I feel like we could probably do a part two because I know um, part of the course I teach, we do um, debriefing during uh, clinical video observations. That's what I teach with the students in, in technical writing and how to write uh, the reports that we have to write. But um, that's one of the things I pointed out today was the difference between a video we watched last week and one we watched this week and the differences in the clinicians and how not only are they explaining to the patient what's going on, but even about feedback and um, reinforcement and being specific about what they're reinforcing, not just going, good job, good job. That was great. The patient doesn't know what the heck that means. I don't even know what right, it means. Right. I don't it's know what it means now. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to come back and play a game of keep or toss with you. Um, oh, I love that. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that at Shaw next month. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, I think this was great. And I think you really pointed out some great points. Um, I think the favorite one, of course, is the patient is paramount. And I always say that, too, that the patient is the most important thing and should be the reason. Um, we should have a reason for why we do what we do and not just go in and be someone else's robot. And I don't remember who said it. I wish I did. But please, just, for, you know, I, I, this is ingrained in my brain now, and I try to ingrain it in my patients. The patient is the only expert in the room. They're the only ones who know what's really happening with them and how, and they're the only ones truly experiencing what's going on. We are cursory to that. The patient is always the expert. And when we, I think when we can frame that mindset, that we change the paradigm shifts in the way that we interact with them changes. Yeah, I agree. And and same with uh, having the access to family or caregivers too, because I will often say thank you for being here because we just met, but you've known them their whole life and you have something to right. offer me that may be a missing piece of the puzzle that I need. Um, yeah, and I always end. I always end every talk with I get with my favorite quote from one of my favorite people in the whole world, Dr. Maggie Lee Huckabee. And it's not a negative quote. Some people think it's a negative statement. I it's what fuels me every day. She says, "Our patients do not fail rehabilitation. We fail to know what our patients need." That's why I get up every day and read research articles and inter interface with people who know more than me, who challenge me. Because every day I want to be better because it's me that has to improve, not my patient. My knowledge base has to get better. It's not my patient's fault. It's all the responsibility lies with me. That's a perfect way to end. We really appreciate you coming on tonight, Ed. Um, it's great to see you, and hopefully I'll see you next month. I saw we, have a question. we have a question. Oh, somebody it took, it disappeared. It was something about an informed consent question. And I'm sorry, but it went away. Oh. But I think it was about, the. Uh, there it is. How do you typically evaluate if a, oh. patient has, if a patient has capacity to provide informed consent? 
Um, I'm not so uh, maybe that may mean if the patient doesn't have capacity, because if they yeah, have because, capacity, just talk to them about it, right? Um, yeah, because we're not the ones who determine capacity. Right. And, I, you know, I mean, I will say the first thing I do when I go in the room is say, I'm Ed and I'm here for, to, you know, the doctor ordered me to evaluate your swallow. Is it okay if I, if this is a person who has capacity, is it okay for me to, you know, are you okay with that? Um, and then even be, before I touch them, I say, can I put my hands on you to feel your neck? Every move that I make, I'm getting permission to do because it's their mm -hmm. body and it's their, their decisions. You know, if they say, no, I'm not interested, then I say, okay, well, you know, the doctor really wants, you know, I might make do two or three statements to see if I can persuade them to, to move forward. But if they say no, ultimately, then I say, okay, well, you know, if you decide, change your mind, or if it, you know, you start coughing or having problems, then, you know, just tell your nurse to contact. We can me. always revisit. Yeah. yeah. Happy to come back. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah, but yeah. if they don't, but if they don't have the capacity then again, whoever is whoever is making decisions for that patient makes the decisions that, and that's never me. Right. Thanks for asking the question. I hope we definitely. I think so. I think so. Well, thank you again, Ed, for being here, and we look forward to seeing you again. Yep. Thanks, Renee. You have a great evening. You too. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Mm -hmm.